Good morning again. Welcome once again to Grace Bible Church. It's great to be back, and again, want to thank Mari. Um, it's great that when I'm gone, I know that the Word is going to be faithfully preached, and so it's fun to be back and to get to preach again, but also good to know that things are, are good when I'm gone. We're continuing our series called Meet Jesus, and this is our last week in the book of Luke. The next week, we're going to jump into the book of Acts. So kind of, again, an overview of what we've been trying to do is look at snapshots of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Re-examine um, maybe the old wives' tales, the myths, the history channel ideas that we have about Jesus and look at the original sources. Who is the real Jesus? What do the scriptures have to say about him? So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, named after him. He also wrote the book of Acts. Uh, so well, this will be our last picture of Jesus from Luke. Next week we'll start in with some of the sermons from the book of Acts and continue these, these portraits, these snapshots of who Jesus is. Uh, this week we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, which can be found on page 878 in the Black Bibles you'll see under the chair. So if you want to grab one of those to know where we are, page 878, it's Luke 19. Last week, Mari did a great job of preaching from Luke 18, so we were just in kind of a, a couple of stories back, and we saw the idea that it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talked about how impossible it is for the rich to be saved. His disciples were baffled, were stunned. Obviously, it's bad news for us, being the richest people in the world here in America. Jesus says it's impossible for the rich to be saved. He does hold out a little hope. He says what's impossible with man is possible with God. This week, we're going to get another story of a rich guy. So it's really interesting. He's picking this up. Uh, very closely to that statement about the impossibility of the rich being safe. So I'm going to call it Jesus meets the impossible. So we're going to see Jesus collide here with this uh, rich man, Zacchaeus. Have you ever heard of Zacchaeus before? Those of you that grew up in a church have probably heard of him. There's a song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Good job. All right. So he was short. So he had all kinds of stuff stacked against him. It was impossible for him to be saved, as we saw in chapter 18, because he was rich. He was also a tax collector, which was considered a horribly sinful occupation in the Jewish first century context, and he was short. Um, so I, I guess short people can be saved, but I mean, he, was, he just had all these things going against him, and we'll unpack it here in the story. I'm going to do something new. I'm 43, and two friends have bought me these, so here we go. Just don't make fun of me, okay? So we're going to read with my glasses from Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature, a wee little man. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So again, a chapter ago, Jesus said it was impossible for the rich to be saved. Here, Jesus is saying, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Let me pray for us and we'll ask God to help us. God, we thank you that you meet us uh, in our impossible situations. God, I know every person here is facing something that 
they don't think can be overcome. And so we come in hope that this is true. God, we ask that you would show us that you're at work, that your spirit would meet us here and help us to believe the impossible, help us to see what you're doing in the world. We ask for your help because of your grace, because of your kindness, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we mentioned earlier, uh, myself and Pastor Stephen had the great privilege of getting to be your representatives to minister to church planters and partners of ours in Europe uh, and in the Middle East last week. And so we spent a few days in the Middle East, we spent a few days in Rome at a church planting conference of European church planters. Um, So it was really interesting to be touring Rome and to be thinking about what it was like for the first century Christians that were the first audience of this book, right? The, the New Testament, anyway, was written in the context of first century Rome. And Rome was the most powerful empire in the world. Rome was impossible to stop. And so I want you to think for just a second what it would have been like to be one of those people living at that time. Imagine what it would be like to, to live in the year 100 AD. You're a follower of Jesus, and you live in the Roman Empire, maybe a little nearby, one of the outskirts cities of Rome. The apostle John has just died in exile a few years before. All of the other apostles have been murdered by the imperial power of Rome. It's impossible to defeat Rome. They're unstoppable. No army is as powerful as hers. No society has ever been as advanced as her with her highways and her waterways, her glorious temples to every god. She tolerates every new idea and every new religion except for the worship of Jesus because Jesus claims to be Lord over all. So you are a follower of Jesus in a situation where to worship Jesus could mean ridicule. It could mean the loss of your property. It could even mean uh, your cruel death in the Colosseum. We toured the Colosseum, and I thought, man, this is where where Christians were murdered for sport. What would it have been like to have been a Christian in that situation facing these impossible odds? Well, we have another story here that Luke gives us of a Jewish man who's facing impossible odds as well. As I said, he had physical stature issues that just physically made it hard for him to see Jesus. He was a sinner. He was an outsider in the Jewish context because he was a tax collector. We've talked about this before in Luke, but tax collectors betrayed their people. They basically would cooperate with the Romans to gouge their people to get taxes and extort money from them. So they were just known publicly as cheats, as liars, as uh, defrauders. Not only was he a tax collector, it says he was the chief tax collector. And on top of all that, it says he was rich. And just a chapter before, Jesus was like, yeah, it's impossible for the rich to be saved. So what are we going to do with all that? Well, as the text unfolds, we kind of see layers of impossibility, and we see Jesus confront that impossibility. The first layer that we see is that neediness, neediness makes salvation impossible. Neediness makes salvation impossible. Again, as I said, he was short. He was a chief tax collector. He was rich. He had all these things going against him. Verse 3 focuses in on his stature. It says he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So just a simple physical barrier. He, he just couldn't see. He couldn't see beyond the crowd. He was trying to get a look and everybody else was in the way and he was short and he couldn't 
get close to Jesus. So it says in verse 4, he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Commentators would say this was probably a fig, and they were called sycamores or sycamore figs because they had the same kind of leaves as a sycamore tree, so they just kind of looked the same. Uh, But this would have been unique and a common first century Jewish tree because it had um, trees, uh, tree branches that went out sideways and started really low. You know how some fruit trees have really low branches? So this would have been one of those kind of trees. So perfect for a short man to climb up onto the low branches and be able to make it up there. So, so you're imagining kind of like uh, in our hallway, we have a stepping stool for the water fountain, right? And that's for children so they can get up and reach the water fountain so they can splash water off of their face and spread it all over the hallway. And so in a lot of situations, right, we have these ladders, we have these stepping stools. I grabbed a picture of a little kid standing by a stepping stool. The picture cracks me up because it's like he has no idea what it's for. He's like, why are you staring at me? What is this stool for? But um, often we get these little, little stools for, for little kids so they can see or so they can reach the cereal boxes and the cabinet or, you know, whatever it might be. I can remember as a child climbing up on the counter to make my breakfast, you know, to get a bowl out because I couldn't reach it unless I climbed on the counter. You know, I think I would like open a cabinet, step on, climb up, and um, I lived independently as a toddler, I guess. Um, So I can remember these things. And and so Zacchaeus is a short man. He can't see. He's trying to overcome his neediness. He's trying to overcome this difficulty. And and I think in this picture, we're, we're meant to see that we have issues that make it hard for us to see Jesus as well. And my question for you is, what are the issues in your life that make you think, I can't do it? This is impossible. What are the issues that make it hard for you to see Jesus? Are there problems that you're facing that you're like, this is just impossible. I could really follow Jesus if I didn't have this family issue. I could really follow Jesus if I didn't have this issue at work. I could really follow Jesus if I didn't have this addiction, or this sin, or this love, or this obsession, or this weakness, whatever it is, what's the neediness that in your mind has convinced you it's impossible for you to see Jesus, to follow Jesus, to know Jesus? I love the picture that we have here, because we have Zacchaeus just pressing into that neediness. He's like, I'm short, I can't see him, so I'm just going to climb a tree. I'm just going to do what I can do. I'm going to dive headlong into that impossibility. I'm going to just approach, right? He had every reason to not approach, every reason to think that Jesus would want to have nothing to do with him, every reason to think that uh, it wasn't worth his time, but he wanted to see Jesus. And the, the beautiful thing here is I think we have, we've got an invitation to approach Jesus through our impossible situations. Because what we see is as Zacchaeus approaches Jesus through this impossible situation, Jesus approaches Zacchaeus. It's a beautiful picture. Look look at verse 5. When Jesus came to this place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down, received him joyfully. We We should throw our dignity our caution, our concerns, our neediness to the wind, and approach Jesus. And kind of the mystery, the paradox is as we pursue Jesus, as we approach him, despite the impossibility of the situation, we actually see that Jesus was approaching us all along. It's a beautiful picture. Those of you that have been walking with Jesus for a while, you look back on your history and you recognize 
man, I thought I was making these big heroic efforts to come to Jesus, and Jesus was pursuing me. Jesus was haunting me. Jesus was chasing me. Jesus was grabbing hold of me in my life. And it's a beautiful thing to awaken to as you grow in following Jesus. So for those of you that have whatever it is, some impossible barrier that's making you think, I can't, I can't come to Jesus, I would just say, come. Just come. Just throw that concern out the window and approach, and you'll wake up to the reality that Jesus is approaching you. Jerem Bars talks about Zacchaeus specifically and says, clearly Zacchaeus is not interested in preserving his dignity. The wealthy and the powerful do not usually behave like small boys and climb trees in front of a crowd of people. Think about that. We've already kind of talked about first century culture a lot. That would have been a very undignified thing to do. He was looking like a child climbing on a stepping stool, but he said, I don't care. It's a rich and powerful man with a lot of sway and a lot of influence. He's like, I don't care. I don't care if I look stupid. I don't care if I look like a fool. My question for you is, are you, are you willing to look like a fool? Are you willing to throw your dignity out the window? Are you willing to say, I don't care what's keeping me from Jesus. I'm just going to pursue. I'm just going to follow. And again, I think a beautiful picture we have in this text is as we, as we stumble over those impossible situations, whatever that is, whatever that barrier is, we stumble through our neediness and throw our dignity aside, we see Jesus coming face to face and say, I'm coming to your house. What's cool is this is, um, this is an encouragement to us to, to come to Jesus, but it's also kind of scary, right? Because think about it, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, and now Jesus is invading his privacy, right? Zacchaeus wanted to get close to Jesus. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. And Jesus comes in and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And so this is a warning for you. Come to Jesus and he'll come to you, but be careful because he'll start messing with parts of your life you don't really want him messing with. He'll like come into your house. He'll, he'll be in your closet. He'll be in your stuff. He'll get closer than you want him to get. So it's a warning, but it's also an invitation. It's worth it. Again, look at Verse 6, he hurried, he came down, and he received him joyfully. There's joy there. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's scary, right? You start off thinking, I just want to check into this whole Jesus thing. I think I'll come to church, and all of a sudden, Jesus is in your house. You're like, Jesus, what are you doing here? In this, in this time period, Zacchaeus couldn't have invited Jesus to his house. It would have been unheard of. The Jews just had nothing to do with these kinds of unclean, gross, disgusting sinners. And so Jesus doesn't wait for Zacchaeus to ask. Zacchaeus never would have asked. Jesus just tells him, I'm coming to your house. I'm coming in. I'm, I'm going to invade your life. And so again, I want to invite you to approach and warn you that as you approach Jesus, he will come and he will, he will turn your life upside down. But it's worth it. It's worth it because he loves you. The next thing that we see is uh, after neediness is overcome, sin is the next barrier to be overcome. Sin also makes salvation impossible. We grow up in a society that says uh, if you want to be uh, loved by God, you've got to be a good person, right? If you want to uh, have God's blessings, you've got to do things right. Um, and Jesus is kind of messing with their understanding of how all this works. He's kind of tearing down the religious understanding of sin and salvation cleanliness, holiness, contact with the, the good guys versus the bad guys. Look at verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry 
and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried, came down, received him joyfully. So we have what we already exposed here, Jesus invading his space. But, but look at what's said in verse 7. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So Jesus is breaking the rules. Jesus is not supposed to be a friend with a sinner. He's going to the house of a sinner. It's very clear in the first century Jewish context, if you've got serious sin like Zacchaeus, uh, God can't get anywhere close to you. Good people can't get anywhere close to you. But Jesus just throws aside all those barriers and says, I'm going to invade your life. I'm going to come and be with you. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to uh, have a party with you. I'm going to enjoy fellowship with you. I'm going to be your friend. In, in the book Bars wrote on the book of Luke, he says that befriending sinners is the gospel. Befriending sinners is the gospel, but so often we worry about getting contaminated by the sin of sinners. You ever worry about that? There was a story I read this week uh, about a couple that caught the swine flu. They both had it right before their wedding. And so they were concerned that nobody was going to come to their wedding, right? Like you're going to hear through the grapevine, oh, the couple has swine flu. I'm not going to that wedding, right? I'll just stay home. And so they decided to let their friends know and kind of spread around everybody, we're going to be wearing gloves and surgical masks at our wedding. Here's a picture. This is an actual story. This is a real couple that really got married, and they really did wear surgical masks and gloves because they wanted to reassure people it's okay to come and have table fellowship with us, to be around us, even though uh, we might defile you, right, with the swine flu. We'll wear these masks. We'll wear these gloves so you know you can be safe. Um, what are the situations like that in your life where you think, I don't want to be around that because it's just gross. It's going to contaminate me. In the first century context, Zacchaeus was that kind of guy. He was a tax collector. He was a sinner. He had issues. The Jews didn't want to be around him. The religious people wanted to keep their distance. Who are the people like that that you think, okay, this sin is okay and this sin is okay, but this sin, that's just too much. That just grosses me out. I don't want to be with those people. What are those sins for you? Another way to think about it is what are those sins that you think keep God from having fellowship with you, right? What are the sins in our own life that we think, you know, God doesn't really mind when I lose my temper. God doesn't really mind uh, when I'm late. God doesn't really mind this and this, but this one sin, that's too much for God to handle. God, God can't approach me because of that. It's just too much. And I've said this often before, when, when we have a particular category of sin like that that we think is too much for God to handle, it's a, it's a form of pride. We're basically saying, God, my sin is just too powerful and too impressive for you to be able to take care of it. We're denying God's power. In this story, in the book of Luke, we, we see a trajectory that's moving towards the end of the book of Luke where Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. And he's raised again on the third day, proving that he's conquered sin and death, that he's the first fruits of the new creation, of a new humanity that has life after death. Even just a few verses back in the little section between this story and the story that Mari preached last week, we have Jesus explaining again, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to die just like the prophets promised about me, I'm the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, all of this is going to happen. 
You've been waiting for a perfect sin sacrifice. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system points to the need for sacrifice for sin. That's going to be me. I'm going to be that sin sacrifice. The whole story comes together. The New Testament points out that Jesus is the sacrifice for sin. The way that sin is overcome is that your sins and my sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus. And Jesus died. He paid the price for our sins so that Jesus doesn't have to be afraid of our sins and we don't have to be afraid of our sins. That's something impossible that Jesus overcomes through the cross, through the shedding of his blood, through dying on the cross for our sins, through rising again to new life. So again, the story is even the sins that you think are impossible, even the sins that you think God can't handle, Jesus can handle it. That's the whole point of him dying on the cross for your sins and for my sins. Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So Jesus dies on the cross to forgive our sins, and there's this natural transformation that takes place in our life. When you recognize that Jesus has come to you at the cost of himself, that Jesus, at his own effort, by his own grace, has come into your life, has invaded your home, it begins to, it begins to mess with you. It changes you. You begin to want to live differently, and that's what we see happening in the life of Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus was a, a sinner, a tax collector who defrauded people, and now Jesus comes into his home. And what happens after Jesus comes into his home? He starts wanting to, to do right by people. We call that sanctification sometimes, being made a saint, being made more holy, being made more and more like Jesus. I love the picture from the book, The Cure by John Lynch. He explains that we often think about our sin in relation to Jesus as a barrier, right? My sin makes it impossible for me to be with God. The cross says that barrier has been overcome. So now Jesus is standing there with his arm around you saying, okay, now let's work on the sin that's still in your life. Those are two completely different ways of relating to God and your sin. So to say it this way, which view is your view? Do you see your sin as this constant barrier to fellowship with God, as this constant barrier to God liking you? Or do you recognize that Jesus has come to your house? He's pointed at you and he says, I'm coming to live with you. So now he's got his arm around you because he's paid the price for your sin. And now he's with you and he's saying, all right, we'll, we'll work on the sin together. Yeah, there's still some issues in your life. Let's work on it. Let's get going. Let's do this. Those are, those are two different views of sin, two different views of Jesus. Here in this story, we have a view of Jesus coming into the house, putting his arm around Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus begins to be transformed. Zacchaeus starts living out the law. This is the kinds of things that the Old Testament law prescribed if you had been defrauding and stealing. And now Zacchaeus is saying, I'm going to obey the law now. I'm going to pay back what I've stolen, what I've defrauded. Jesus has got his arm around you. He overcomes your sin by his work. The last thing that we see is that insignificance makes salvation impossible. Uh, We all feel insignificant at different times. We all feel like kind of we don't matter. We're just a cog in the machine. We're just maybe a sand on the seashore. Um, Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. So Zacchaeus, who felt very insignificant, is now a fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises to Abraham. 
Abraham was promised in Genesis 22 that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the night sky, not a a city sky like our sky where you can count them, but out in the country night sky where you can't count them, right? And he says also, as many as the sand and the seashore. I I grabbed a photo of a a beach scene here. Um, Anybody here make a guess at how many grains of sand there are in that picture? Somebody, you got it? How many? 5,000, maybe. It could be more, possibly. Um, There's a lot of grains of sand in that picture. Uncountable. Think about it this way. You're one of those grains of sand. You're one among a bazillion, right? Do you feel very significant? No, but your significance is being a part of something greater than yourself, and that's the kind of promise that God made to Abraham. He said, your descendants are going to be as many as the stars, as many as the sand on the seashore. We are those grains of sand. We are the children of Abraham. Another kid's song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. I don't remember the rest of the song, but... We are children of Abraham by faith. Galatians and Romans hits this really hard. We're children of Abraham not because of our blood. It's not the color of my skin that makes me a child of Abraham. It's not the neighborhood I grew up in that makes me a child of Abraham. It's not my parents that made me uh, a child of Abraham. I revoke my physical heritage and I trust in Jesus. Being someone who has the faith of Abraham makes me a child of Abraham. And that's the promise we see being fulfilled here in Zacchaeus' life. He's not a son of Abraham because he's got Jewish blood. He's a son of Abraham because he trusts Jesus. And that's the promise that God is extending to you and to me as well, that we can be significant. We can overcome that feeling of just being a sand on the seashore and realize we're a part of the descendants of Abraham that are as many as the sand on the seashore. You remember also he was small. There were all kinds of reasons that Zacchaeus would have thought he didn't matter. But Jesus invaded his life and said, no, you, you matter to me. Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to come to your house. One of my favorite Old Testament passages is Deuteronomy 7.7. 7. So it should be somewhat easy for you to remember and find 7.7, 7, chapter 7, verse 7 in Deuteronomy. God says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath. So let me rephrase this. Uh, he's saying it's not because you are impressive or significant that God loves you. No, you're insignificant. It's because of God's significant love that he loves you. God's love is the reason for his love for you. It's not how impressive you are. That's the gospel. That's what Zacchaeus came to terms with, and that's what I pray we come to terms with. I want desperately to be significant. The Bible tells me my significance is in being a child of God, being a part of what God is doing in the world. One of the amazing things about seeing believers, seeing the gospel bearing fruit and growing in other cultures is you recognize God is at work, and my cultural preferences aren't going to stop it or slow it down, but God is at work. God is continuing to to build his kingdom, to grow his people. We can be on board with what he's doing or we can reject it, but we see here that Jesus continually overcomes these impossible situations. So 
Jesus meets the impossible. Jesus overcomes the impossible. I want to remind you again the, the context Luke said it's impossible, it's impossible for a rich man to be saved. And the disciples are blown away and they're like, well, how can anybody be saved? And Jesus says, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And then in this story, he, he comes in and he, and he shows us how it works. He's like, I am the power of God saving people. I have come, he says in verse 10, to seek and to save the lost. What's impossible with man is possible with God through Jesus who comes to seek and to save the lost. So last week when Pastor Stephen and I were at this church planners conference in Rome, I was just struck by the contrast of touring the Colosseum one day where Christians were murdered for sport, and then the next day we're we're gathered around the hope we have in Jesus, worshiping him in a basement in Rome. You know, we're, we're underground, but for different reasons. I think we were just underground because the air conditioning worked better down there. Uh, we weren't being chased, right? And our hope is in Jesus. And I was just blown away, and some of the speakers mentioned this as well, how there's this contrast between the great and glorious impossible-to-stop empire of Rome you know what? It's collapsed. It's just ruins. There's like nothing left of it. You just see the traces of the former glory. You can see a column of a temple or a corner of a building, but it's all fallen down. But the empire of Jesus continues to grow, continues to move forward. I want to invite you to be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world. He loves you. He's come to seek and save people like you and, and me. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're pursuing us. We thank you that you're including us in in what you're doing in the world. We thank you for the faith of believers all across Europe, for the believers we met in the Middle East who are facing impossible odds, who are faithfully walking with you. We pray that you would help us to be those same kinds of believers that trust you even in what seems like impossible situations. We pray that you would use us, that you would help us to share your goodness and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.